Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Many Pennsylvanians remember 25 years ago when former Governor Bob Casey underwent a historic heart and liver transplant to save his life. What isn't quite as well known is the story of the man whose organs Casey received. It's one of the fascinating chapters in best-selling author and journalist William Eckenbarger's new book, Pennsylvania Stories Well Told. And we're going to talk about uh, many of those stories on today's program with William Eckenbarger. Mr. Eckenbarger, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Good to be here. If you have a question or a comment, and uh, I'm sure that uh, some of these stories uh, are going to jog some memories, and uh, there will be some parts of this that uh, you'll say, you know, I never knew that about uh, that story or about uh, that incident. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Now, we spoke the last time right after your best-selling book, Kids for Cash, came out. That was the story of the judges in northeastern Pennsylvania who sent many juveniles to privately owned detention centers in return for kickbacks. Uh, but this book is, is different. This book is different. This is a compilation of many of the stories you wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine, and most are 25 to 30 years old that you updated. So what was the idea behind this book? Well, Scott, I, I uh, wrote about uh, 100 of these articles, and um, uh, several people urged me to... to uh, to uh, put something together like this book, uh, some uh, some of my colleagues and also my uh, brother-in-law. So um, I went through and tried to pick out ones that uh, uh, were about Pennsylvania and uh, that would still uh, have relevance today. And so I, I, I set upon these 12. Now, you updated at the beginning of each chapter, you updated what happened and occurred in, in the years since. But you're right that these stories are are still uh, very relevant. Uh, over the years, I'm sure that uh, there have been people uh, who read these articles and said, I didn't know that. I, I think that is one of the most compelling parts of the stories that are in the book is that uh, there is a, a factor of, huh, I, little known facts. Are there one or two in the book that stick out to you that you heard most often from people saying, I didn't know that? Well, um, uh, a lot of people don't understand the Mason-Dixon line. Um, they they think it, it's... Uh, it somehow goes out to the Pacific Ocean, or it was part of the Civil War, or uh, the fact is it was drawn before the before the Revolution by two English surveyors, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, and uh, it had nothing to do with the Civil War, and it only goes from the Atlantic Ocean to a point in western Pennsylvania. Um, so um, a lot of people don't know that. I, I, I've, I've seen uh, uh, intelligent people uh, say that... Uh, when they went from uh, uh, Colorado to Wyoming, they crossed the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> well, I didn't realize that it started at the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, right there in, uh, you know, the little where Delaware meets Maryland and goes to, uh, you know, goes to the western part of the state. Right. Yeah. Well, you you followed the entire Mason Dixon line for that, right? Yes, uh, as as much as I could. There were there were some places where uh, it didn't make any sense. It was just uh, uh, uphill in a in a forest, and uh, but um, I, I say I I walked about half of it. And actually, uh, this is the only article I wrote that uh, turned into a book. Um, I, I, I wrote a book in uh, 2000 called Walk on the Line. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because, our, you know, we, we know you out there listening uh, are, are interested in history. And as you said, this is very little known. It has been the Mason-Dixon line has been celebrated in song, stories. Uh, yeah, so many country songs I've heard over mm -hmm. the years. Once I crossed that Mason-Dixon line, I'm back in the South. Uh, you know, this, it became really 
dividing line between this, the North and South in the Civil War, right? Yes. Yeah, um, uh, when when uh, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon left America in 1767, it was uh, it, it, it didn't even have a name. Uh, no one called it the Mason-Dixon line. In fact, the the two surveyors probably never heard the phrase Mason-Dixon line. Um, it became uh, um, relevant when uh, Pennsylvania abolished slavery. And then the Mason-Dixon line became the line between slavery and freedom. And uh, th- that's how it became so symbolic. And, and for just for background purposes, if I can remember correctly, in Pennsylvania, it was the 1830s, 1840s, that uh, where slavery was actually abolished in Pennsylvania, right? No, it was actually legally abolished in 1780. But, oh, really? Uh, that far but, back? But uh, um, uh, Pennsylvanians were allowed to keep their existing slaves. That's right. That's And then most of those, it was like 1830s, 1840s before they finally were all free. Yeah. In the 1830s and the 1840s, there were uh, Pennsylvania farmers who would... Um, keep their slaves in Maryland right across the Mason-Dixon line, and they they would bring them over every day to work and then take them back, uh, back mm. to Maryland at night. Yeah. That's kind of a big loophole that they, they, yeah, went, they used. Well, let's go back even further. Provide some background, if you would, on uh, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Well, there was a uh, uh, major border, border dispute between colonial Pennsylvania and colonial Maryland. Then... It went on for a long time. It went on for 50 years or so, and there was some bloodshed and some violence, and no one knew who who uh, who lived where. People weren't sure if they were in Maryland or Pennsylvania, who to pay taxes to. So uh, King George um, uh, appointed two um, surveyors, uh, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, to come over here and, and, uh, and uh, fix it. And they they did it. Uh, it took them from 1763 to 1767. And it, at the time, it, it, it was a a um, major engineering feat. And as you write, so accurate. I mean, considering yeah. that we're talking the 1760s, and since even with the technology we have, it was they were using stars and yeah. everything out, and it was it was so accurate, right? It was very accurate. Uh, there were some places where they were maybe 500 feet off or something like that, but but it was basically a, basically an amazing feat. When did the Mason-Dixon line become this thing of lore, though? Um, Around 1820, um, Thomas Jefferson wrote to someone uh, about the uh, uh, slavery issue, and he referred to the line between Pennsylvania and Maryland as the Mason-Dixon line. And that, it, it, it kind of uh, uh, picked up steam, and then at, around 1850, a uh, prominent historian, uh, Benjamin Latrobe, um, used it. I called it the Mason-Dixon line? Called the Mason-Dixon line, yeah. And I assume that uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, is named after Benjamin Latrobe? I don't know that, but I assume. <laughs> but I would assume, yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, uh, you say that there's a lot of uh, myths around it, and a lot of people think uh, that uh, it goes beyond uh, Pennsylvania. I know that uh, there are certain places along the Mason-Dixon line that where it is marked. I mean, you cross the state line and, uh, you know, you see the sign that says, Welcome to Maryland, Mason-Dixon line, that kind of thing. But I'm talking about the original stones and stones that have been replaced. How many of them are there? There are there, there are about uh, 230 of them. Um, and uh, it's uh, quite an issue right now because um, those stones are, are um, out there, many of them in the woods, and um, they're they're uh, they're actually they're actually very uh, valuable historical things, and uh, but no one's protecting them. Uh, the two states have a uh, study going right now to um, see how they, what they can do to protect this to protect the stones. How did you find the stones? Um, I got in touch with a surveyor who uh, made it his business to uh, know about the Mason Dixon line, and and he. He either took me to them or he told me how to get to them. Because I, 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 one right along I-81, mm-hmm. uh, Hagerstown and right mm-hmm. over in Greencastle in, in, in Pennsylvania. And I remember I, I wanted to find one and had a little bit of trouble. It's right like in the middle of an industrial park. Yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, you really have to know what you're doing to, uh, to uh, find most of them. 
If you're just tuning in, uh, our guest today is William Meckenbarger, who is the author, uh, best-selling author. His latest book is uh, Pennsylvania Stories Well Told. And uh, we're telling a a number of those stories today. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so the very first chapter, the one I've been talking most about, was uh, 1993, June 1993. Lake Governor Bob Casey was suffering from a rare disease that attacked his immune system. He was told he needed or a liver transplant was an option for his treatment, but then it became more complicated. Tell the story of how it became more complicated. Well, he, he, uh, um, he, he became uh, uh, more and more ill, and, and then he, he, uh, uh, he, he read somewhere about a, a heart-liver transplant. And um, he found a, uh, a uh, doctor out in Pittsburgh, Tom Starzl. <clears throat> and so he went out there, and he was awaiting a, uh, a donor. And uh, um, at the same time, in Manesson, Pennsylvania, a, a, a young man was savagely beaten in a, in a drug deal. Mike Lucas. Mike Lucas, yes. And um, uh, he was taken to the hospital, and uh, he, was, he was put on a... Uh, Ventilated for about a week, and then they, the family decided that he was uh, he was not going to live, and they could they could stop support. And um, so they uh, first they took his took his organs out, and then they they uh, stopped stopped life support, and they they uh, gave him the Casey. And uh, the one of the interesting things about the story is that had the situation been reversed, and Casey was the donor and Mike Lucas the recipient, he would it, it would not have happened because Mike Lucas didn't have the insurance. So even in those days, uh, insurance yes. was was, was yeah. very important, especially for something like that. Yeah. Right, and again, I remember the day it occurred. Uh, it was in the newsroom here at WITF, and uh, everyone is awaiting news on uh, the the governor's condition. You said that uh, Governor Casey had written or had read about heart liver transplant. Just to go back even a little bit further, the disease his disease disease attacked. His immune system, the liver mostly, um, but he had had heart attacks, so his heart wasn't strong enough to withstand the surgery for yes. liver, and that's why he needed he needed both. At the time, many people were saying, because when you go on a, a list for organ donation, you have to wait a long time, and many people were wondering, well, why didn't Governor Casey have to wait? Why did he only have to wait a week or so? Well, I, I think one reason is they had the insurance. Uh, that, that, that's a major fact. But I, I'm told that, uh, that there were no special, he was given no special treatment. Mm-hmm. And Mike Lucas, and this is one of the most fascinating, fascinating parts of the book because we didn't know the name of the donor for the longest time. Talk a little bit about Mike Lucas, and there is a connection when Manessa, Manessa is outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, you can, t- if you would, talk about Mike Lucas, his background, and what happened to him, and then we'll talk about Manessa then too. Uh, Mike Lucas was a, uh, I think, about thirty-year-old African American uh, who, um, uh, what everyone said, was a nice guy. He was, uh, he was, uh, sometimes in trouble, but not big trouble. And uh, he 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 floated in and out of jobs. And uh, at one point, Bob Casey came to Manessa and, and opened a. Uh, job job creations center and uh, Mike Lucas went there and I think he was hired for a while and a, a job so that was the, the that was the connection there. Yeah, Manesson was is and I don't know whether it still is or not, but former steel town that uh, had fallen upon hard times. Yeah, it, it, it was a, um, a lot of uh, people on public assistance and uh, it, it was uh, but you know I'm I'm fairly certain that Mike Lucas was not a not a bad guy. I think he was. Uh, uh, people liked him, and uh, he was uh, he, he was uh, victimized by a friend, who uh, his friend uh, uh, welched on a drug deal, and uh, put the blame on Mike, and uh, five or six people came to his house and uh, savagely beat him. Yeah, he's watching television with his girlfriend. Right, right. And these guys call him outside. Even the friend was there. Yep. Who, I mean, some friend. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, when uh, a uh, neighbor came out, and, and she thought they were playing football, but they were actually uh, kicking Mike Lucas' head. 
So, as you mentioned, Mike Lucas uh, was alive for uh, uh, about a week. Uh, did people in, on, in Governor Casey's family, the governor, any of those people have any idea that this was a match, that this was a potential match? No, I think it, uh, I think it happened very fast. And I want to go back to what I had said earlier, that uh, most people who receive in Oregon have to wait a long time. They go on a waiting list. And the explanation for why this was so uh, happened so quickly was that it was a heart and a liver, yeah. not just one of those organs. Yeah, and and also Casey had the insurance, right? I mean, right. There, there, <laughs> That's there a might have been somebody, somebody, somebody ahead of him in, in line, but if they didn't have insurance; they weren't going to get it. So, and one other thing to why this is so noteworthy: not only the governor of the state, but uh, he was the, the fifth person in the world. Casey was to have this transplant, yeah. have this double transplant. So uh, it, it, it was very unusual at the time. So what was the legacy of all that? What uh, did you take away from from the story, the Mike Lucas, Bob Casey story? I, I was amazed at uh, Bob Casey's will to live. I mean, uh, uh, he, he just was amazing. And, and, and I mean, he, he was... I. I knew him from the very first time that I came came to Harrisburg to cover state government in the 1960s, and and he he always was a very determined uh, guy. Was, was never uh, uh, put back by defeat, uh, which he suffered many, and this was just another uh, example of the strength of his character. I hosted a radio show, weekly radio show on uh, WITS Radio Pennsylvania Network with Governor Casey, and one thing you one. Tom, you you mentioned an incident you mentioned in the book uh, where he hit his leg on uh, a van or a bus. If I remember correctly, it was like an example of uh, a natural gas-powered bus, something like that. And he came in for the the show later that afternoon, and he was limping. I asked him why he was limping, and he said, I I hit my leg, I hit my shin on this bus, and it hurts, and it's really bruised. I didn't didn't hit it that hard. Hmm. Another time, um, you know, his eyes were all but black. I mean, it was obvious that, uh, you know, he had uh, some major medical problems going on, but continued to serve as governor. Yep. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Our guest today is William Eckenbarger, who is author, an author and journalist. His latest book is Pennsylvania Stories Well Told. We encourage you to join our conversation by calling 1-800-729-7532, sending an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk.witf. Again, the phone number 1-800-729-7532. We have an email here from Susan in Lancaster. She says, as an amateur astronomer, I was fascinated to read a wonderful book by Barbara Fever called Stargazers, the story of Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. What a fascinating fascinating background and history to two very different individuals teaming up in an extraordinary undertaking. Amazing to find that this all initiated in England and the Royal Society of Astronomy. I followed up with a book from the Lancaster Library called Walking the Line, and I think you're very familiar with that book. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Ackenberger is the the author of that book. But Are you familiar with the other book that she's talking about? Yes. uh, That was uh, uh, written uh, well before my book, and and it was fictionalized. It was... was, uh, I mean, um, she made up a lot of dialogue and things to, to tell the story. I mean, I mean, she told the accurate story, but she did, she did it through a, a fictional technique. Hmm. I, there, we have a listener who said that uh, she thought that her father had the same rare disease as Governor Casey, but she thought that Casey got special treatment. Her father wasn't even offered a transplant as an option. Now, she doesn't say when this was. Yeah. I mean, because in 1993, I think that was relatively new. Yeah. But from all you know, the governor got no special treatment. Right. Okay. Uh, let's go to Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Let's see. There you go, Jim. Hi, Scott. Hi. Uh, I just I wanted to uh, 
mention a couple kind of interesting facts about uh, Governor Casey and a personal anecdote about him. Uh, it's also interesting, and probably your guest knows this, that uh, Governor Casey had amyloidosis, and at the same time, or in the same general time period, two other prominent Pennsylvania officials also had the same disease, which is pretty rare. Uh, uh, Mayor uh, Dick Caligiri of Pittsburgh and, and Mayor uh, Lou Tulio of Erie. They both had the same disease. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, in um, 1993, I think it was early June 1993, I worked at uh, on Market Square in Harrisburg, and uh, I would typically come in on Saturday mornings and uh, clear up some paperwork, and they'd go for a run on, in Riverfront Park. And one morning I did that in early June, and there were two burly state police officials and the governor, and the governor literally looked like death warmed over. He, he just looked like a ghost. And then a couple of weeks later, they announced that he was going to have to have the operation. Yeah. So I thought those were interesting, too. All right, Jim, thank you very much for your call. I don't know, Bill, if you saw the governor at that time or not, but he had lost weight, and uh, you know, Jim's description was probably pretty accurate. It's very pale. You could tell that uh, uh, you know, he didn't yeah. look good at all. At this time, I was, I was out of the country, uh, so I... I I came back and had to catch up with this. Uh, mm. So let's move on to a, a, another story. This is one of the most fascinating stories in the book is uh, about Old Smokey, Pennsylvania's electric chair. The last execution, and we heard this name very often when Pennsylvania resurrected some executions in uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s. The name was Elmo Smith. He was the last execution in 1962. Who was Elmo Smith? Um, if my memory is correct, he, Elmo Smith, was a Philadelphian who uh, killed a young girl and uh, was uh, sentenced to death. And he, he was on death row for a long time. Yeah, he, he ra- if I remember correctly, he, he had raped the young girl yep. as well. Uh, that, I mean, this guy was evil personified. Exactly. Yeah, and he was the last one executed in uh, Pennsylvania's electric chair. Yeah. But one of the most fascinating parts of the chapter is you talk about the history of this. The very first execution was in 1915. Provide a little background, if you would, about how Pennsylvania began using the electric chair as its form of execution. Well, it uh, it was part of a national trend. Um, Electricity was just coming into vogue. And um, people were uh, the, the the people behind it were, were were trying to get people to use it, and so one way they could use it was in to uh, um, execute people. So that, that there was a big trend. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, a few states still had a firing squad and uh, hanging, but most states had uh, had electrocution. What was Pennsylvania's form of uh, execution before the electric chair? hanging? We were still hanging. Pennsylvania yeah, was still yeah, hanging. Yeah. Uh, people in uh, before 1915. Yes, it sounds so barbaric uh, th- today, and that was only a, only a hundred years ago. Um, you also wrote that uh, there was some experimentation that went on with the electric chair. Not necessarily here in Pennsylvania, but New York was one of the first states to use an electric chair. And this is just incredible in the context of today of what New York did because they didn't know how many how much power to use to kill a, a person. Yeah, so they 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 experimented on 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 human beings. And uh there was also a battle uh should we use AC or DC? There were there were different people uh, had different positions on that. Edison versus versus Westinghouse. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um it, it was pretty pretty barbaric uh but at that time it was considered a humane way to to execute people. Once someone you know they finally settled on how much electricity uh, how much wattage it would take to uh, execute a person? What happened? I mean, was there pain? Was there uh, suffering? Uh, there's there's great great dispute over that. Uh, I, I I think uh, um, there there still was uh, enough uh, variables in the, the way we execute people to have to have good good, good execution, bad ones. And I I think there is an example of people uh, catching on fire and uh, and uh, smoking and uh, I I I think it was. Uh, uh, for most people, I think it was quick, but uh, I think there were people who suffered. And, I mean, obviously, the name of uh, the electric chair, Old Smokey, that had something to do with 
you know, the prisoners the, right. who who were executed, that there was some smoke involved. Now, you had a number of, of, of stories, uh, you know, you listed, like, some of uh, the more unique ones or the more noteworthy ones, um, little stories about the, some of the people who were executed. I mean, there were those who had to be dragged to the electric chair, which you would think most would. Literally, yes. Then there were those who, like, skipped to it almost, ran to it, yep. and smiled, and were happy, and let's get this over with. Exactly. And there was uh, one one incident. There was always a phone, uh, as they had in the movies, there was always a phone to the governor's office right in the right in the chamber. And, uh, uh, you know, and it, it, um, it would ring if the, if the governor decided to to cancel or postpone the execution. And, and during one execution, the phone rang. But it was a wrong number. So a wrong number came in during the execution. Yes. Would the, the person who was being executed have heard that phone ring? Yes. And probably um, got his hopes up. And uh, and I said his because there were only two women that were yeah. executed in the electric yeah. chair, right? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, a, a fascinating chapter. And uh, it went all the way through uh, 1962 when uh, Pennsylvania used... Uh, the uh, electric chair. Former Ku Klux Klanman Roy Fra- Frankhauser uh, in, was in Berks County, and this guy was, I mean, he was well known beyond the borders of Pennsylvania, but you had the opportunity to follow him around. Uh, first of all, this sounds like a frightening thing to do, but uh, talk about that experience. Well, it had, it, it had its frightening moments, but... Um, uh, I, I, I've known about him since the 1960s when I was covering uh, uh, civil rights rallies and things. He was often there, and I, 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 I kind of single him out because he seemed to be uh, intelligent, unlike most of the uh, uh, losers who were, who were in the Cougar fan. So I, I decided in, in uh, 1980s that I would, I would try to do a, do a story and find out what Buddy was about. So um, uh, I contacted him, and I convinced him that that uh, that I that I would do a fair article, and uh, so uh, I basically hung around with him for about a month. Um, he was uh, um, I came to dislike his uh, his uh, personal hygiene, and yeah, he, he was he was he was a slob, right? Yeah, and he would also frequently steal things like from my car, like sunglasses and and money, and but I let it go because I wanted to keep him keep him talking, and uh, we went to a couple of. Uh, Rallies, uh, and the biggest one was uh, actually right across the Mason-Dixon line in Rising Sun, Maryland, in a in a uh, farm field, and uh, uh, they had a cross burning, and uh, uh, there were people there, uh, kids there, wearing uh, uh, racist slogans on their on their t-shirts, and uh, uh, the, the, one of the weird things was. Um, when they set the cross on, on fire, you could hear it burning, and, and the, the, over the speaker system, they were playing Amazing Grace. And uh, between Amazing Grace, the, the, the people were chanting, white power, white power. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a real scary scene. And yeah, I was going to ask uh, whether you were frightened at all. A little bit, but uh, I, I, I always knew at the, at the rallies that the, that the FBI was not far away, so I wasn't too concerned. So... You said to Frank Hauser that uh, I'm going to do a fair article. I would imagine that uh, anyone in the Klan would be suspicious or uh, of, of someone in the media, yeah. especially the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, you know, a, a major market uh, newspaper. Uh, what did you mean by I'm going to be fair, and what did he take that as to mean? I just said that that, that I would not uh, do a um, um, negative article about him. I would just... Just do what what he follow around and and do what he said or write what he said and what what he did and uh, um, it worked out fine. Mm. So you said that uh, he was intelligent uh, to a degree, but uh, that he, how did you not confront him when he stole things out of your car? Uh, I just didn't want to uh, um, um, interrupt the flow of things, um, and I, I, by the way, didn't put that in the article that he, he stole things from my car. So I, it's in I the book. Be, though. Be, it, it's in the it, it's in the thing that precedes the article. Now, yeah, yeah. yeah. is he still alive? No, he died uh, about five years ago, I think. Yeah, and his home was his headquarters. Where Where in Berks County was that? It was in right in the city of 
Reading on one of the main streets, uh, and uh, it, it was a um, uh, it, it was a very smelly place. It was dark. Uh, uh, he, he he lived there uh, by himself for b- many years, and he, he, it was just a, a dreadful place. I mean, what did it look like inside the house, other than being dirty and smelly and all that? I mean, did, were there uh, Nazi flags? Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing. But one of the things that was on the wall was a a, a, a blood spattering. And uh, that was uh, that 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 took place in the 1960s when when um, uh, one of his colleagues in the Klan uh, uh, found out that he was Jewish, and so he killed himself right in his house, right in Frank House's house. Yeah, 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 and and didn't tell anyone what he was going to do. No, right? no, it was a total no. surprise. Yep. Yeah. So, what did you take away from that? I mean, what did you learn? What lessons are there for for people to learn about? Uh, well, what I, you I, saw? I I learned that uh, um, the Ku Klux Klan and and uh, organization like that succeed with people who are on the fringe, who don't have jobs, and they're looking for somebody to blame, and uh, so they blame blame blacks or Jews or. Did they target? One group more than the other, or was it an equal opportunity uh, racism? Pretty much equal opportunity. Although it's, uh, of course, of course, historically it it uh, it uh, targeted African Americans, but um, um, the, the, it was also anti-Jewish and anti-Arab. I imagine that there was a lot of use of the N word. And yes, uh, indeed, very, very constantly much. from the kids, from from you know, ten-year-old kids. But yeah, you said these kids were dressed with racial t-shirts. slogans. T- t- How t- old were the kids? Uh, maybe eight, ten, twelve. Yeah, lots of kids. They would be adults today. Yes, oh yeah. Let's take a phone call from Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Yes, I have a friend who graduated from Gettysburg College, and he's a, an, a, a lawyer in Florida. And he was telling me that the crucifix is on the way to Gettysburg, right outside of Gettysburg. There's three of them. I think too dark and a white one in the center, like white poplar wood or something to that effect. I can't remember. But I see them all the time. But those are Ku Klux Klan crucifixes. And I wanted to see if that, if your guest knows anything about that. All right. Thank you very much for your, I think you talk about referring to crosses that are um, along, I, along Route 15 as you go into Gettysburg. I think there's a church nearby. Yeah, I would be very surprised if that was the case, that they would be standing very long, but um, um, I don't know for a fact. Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember where she's talking about. I think there's a church nearby. My guess is that, uh, yeah, if they had anything to do with the Klan, that they wouldn't be standing there very long. Our guest during the today's program is William Eckenbarger. Uh, he is author of the best-selling book, Kids for Cash. He was a journalist with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Inquirer magazine. His latest book is Pennsylvania Stories Well Told. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. And uh, on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. All right, let's, let's talk about... Um, some other parts, uh, other stories in the book. And and here's one that I hope people can, it, it reads very well on paper. And I don't know whether we can tell the story quite as well, but the, this is a quirky little story. Your editor at the Enquirer wanted you to write a story. Well, I'm just going to skip ahead to the pencil. You tell me how this transpired. Well, I, I, was, uh, I was down at the uh, Enquirer offices uh, talking to my editor who at that time was the late David Bolt and um, he, he asked me if I thought I could write, write an interesting article about anything and I said uh, well, I'm not sure so he, he looked around for a while and then, uh, at, his, at his wall and everything then he opened his drawer and he pulled out this yellow pencil he said write an article about this so I, I wasn't sure what I could do but I went up to the uh, Inquirer Library and started looking through things, and uh, eventually discovered that uh, um, the uh, pencil was was discovered or invented by by a man named Caspar Faber in Nuremberg, um, Germany, around 1765. But his great 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 grandson was now making pencils in Wilkesbury, 
Pennsylvania. So that was I mean, uh, near Wilkes-Barre. So um, I immediately had a, a, a good hook, and then I just started reading uh, all kinds of pencil lore. I found out that uh, Lincoln wrote the first draft of the Gettysburg Address in, in, in pencil. Um, Ernest Hemingway used to write his, uh, his novels in pencil. And uh, so it, 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 it developed into this kind of... Uh, uh, quirky uh, exploration of of the of the pencil, which I which I call the the most um, useful thing thing in the world and the most stolen thing in the world and uh, um, things like that. There were some quirky stories surrounding the pencil, but uh, before we get into uh, some of those stories, you mentioned Faber's you know, the the uh, descendant of of Casper Faber in Wilkesburg at one time. Faber dominated the pencil market, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, very much, very, very much. They were, they were the, they were the, uh, the by far the leader. Mm. Not today. No, the pencil has uh, the the pencil has kind of uh, yeah. uh, gone off to the side because of the word processor. I mean, um, uh, but I think it. Uh, you know, you know, I still use the pencil, and I think a lot of people do. Well, when you talked about going to the library at the Inquirer building, uh, you know, just think if you had access to the internet at that time. Yeah, sure, that would have been a bit. <laughs> those were the days when uh, those the day the, uh, the uh, you actually went through the clippings. I mean, and they, the the people actually clipped the the stories and put them in uh, the number number ten envelopes, and you had to get these things out. Sometimes they fall in your hands; they crumble. They were so old. Uh, now that's of course now that's all different now. All right, getting back to your pencil story, which is it's just it is such a quirky story. It's so fascinating because of how the, the story transpired. Everyone thinks of pen, pencils and they say lead pencils, right. and I can remember people saying as we were growing up and we chewed on pencils, don't chew on the pencil because there's lead in the pencil. There isn't lead in the pencil, or it's not just lead. No, there is no lead in the pen. There is no lead in the lead pencil. It's um, graphite. So, how did the lead come about? Where did people I'm come up sure. with the idea? I'm not sure how it got it got to be called lead, but uh, uh, it, it it stuck, and it, it you know people still refer it today. But there's no lead in the lead pencil. Now. Was it Dear Abby or Ann Landers who also found a use for yes. uh, for, for trying, pencils? I'm trying to remember that uh, someone wrote. Uh, a, a, I, a, I think a it was young, Ann Landers. Yeah, a, uh, a young woman wrote in and asked when she should, uh, whether or not she should wear a bra, whether she's old enough to wear a bra. And I think the advice was, um, uh, put the pencil horizontally beneath your breast. If if if, if it stays there, you need a bra. That's not advice you hear very often no. nowadays, but, uh, hey, it came from Ann Landers, so, you know. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest is Bill uh, Eckenbarger, who is uh, the author of the new book, Pennsylvania Stories Well Told. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Let's go to Bill in York. has a little more information on those crosses that Mary had referred to. Bill, what, what's the story on those? The story goes, there was, there was a contractor out of Martinsburg, West Virginia, years ago, had a son who was killed the crash. So after the son was put away and buried, he went out and, and he erected three crosses as a marker along the highway with his son. Well, then later on, people started asking him, you know, about the box. They started asking him if he would do it for them. So what he did is he had this large construction company, but when the things took slow, he didn't fulfill these requests. Yeah, i tell you what, Bill. We have a very bad connection. I think uh, the the point of what he was going to make, I w- wish we could hear the whole story, but uh, that, that connection is, is not real good. But what I got from it was that uh, it was not uh, related to uh, the Ku Klux Klan. The Pennsylvania Turnpike. Pennsylvania Turnpike, uh, when it opened in uh, the early 40s, was called uh, the nation's superhighway. And you traveled the Turnpike and at different mile markers talked about uh, some of the unique aspects of it. But talk about the Turnpike and why it's so interesting, why you would write about the Turnpike. Well, one of the, well, um, I would write about it because nearly every Pennsylvania has been on it. Right. Um, I got interested because uh, I learned that the original Turnpike, which ran from Carlisle to Irwin out in western Pennsylvania, uh, was um, built 
using the path and the and the and the tunnels of a, an abandoned New York Central Railroad uh, project that was uh, started in the 1880s. And uh, when when the people came along to determine the best route for the turnpike, that was the best route, and they had the tunnels, so so they saved a lot of money. And uh, so it started out as this uh, this uh, this uh, incredibly fast highway. Uh, there was no uh, medial barrier between the lanes, and there was no speed limit in the, in, in, at first. And uh, after a few uh, very violent accidents, they they they, they put a speed limit in. But uh, uh, people loved to drive it. It was, you know, uh, you, you do drive fast. There was no, no uh, danger of uh, someone pulling out of the road, and, and uh, so it, it was quite a, uh, quite a uh, popular thing. In the ni- it opened in 1940, and President Roosevelt was a big supporter of uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, but uh, for national security reasons. Yeah, the uh, the turnpike was uh, was uh, built with the, in in mind that uh, it would provide fast transportation from the from the Midwest to the East Coast. Indeed, um, after World War II, uh, Dwight Eisenhower said that the turnpike did shorten the war. How's that? Well, uh, they could get goods goods and materials and men actually to the to the East Coast to the. Uh, uh, much faster because the what, what the turnpike eliminated was, was called the Appalachian Barrier. The the uh, the mountains between uh, Harrisburg and Pittsburgh were were uh, steep and and there was no road that you that you got on that that you'd have to go over these mountains. So it was a very 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 slow going, and with the turnpike, it could just uh, zip right through it. As you said, the tunnels. It was important that the tunnels were already. Uh, were already dug through through the mountains, but there were people who died digging those tunnels, right? Yeah, very many, very many people died building the turnpike. Mm. Um, and also, something that is a lot of people probably have a hard time imagining today is that when you went into the tunnels, it was only one lane in each direction. Yes. That's uh, and uh, that that proved to be very dangerous uh, because of course uh, any kind of an accident in the tunnel tied up t- tied up traffic for hours and hours. Mm. Um, you also talk about some of the things that uh, you can see along the turnpike. I've also all, often wondered about that church. There was a church in western Pennsylvania where uh, stairs lead from the roadside up to a Catholic church on the side of a hill, and as you said, there were. You know, no parking lots, no stoplights, anything like that. Why would someone do that? I don't know. People just would would get off the road. Uh, this, of course, only when 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 uh, mass is being said. But uh, people would get off the road and and uh, but pull off to the side and walk across and go up the stairs and go go to mass. It was it was kind of a a, a fun thing to do for people. I understand that that's no longer. Uh, um, Possible. I think they've they've stopped that, but I, I'm not sure about that. It's still. I mean, the stairs the are still is, there, the but I've never old. seen a car pulled no. along the side of the road uh, uh, f- for that. But uh, that's. I mean, that chapter. One of the things that's uh, also fascinating about it is you talk about when the turnpike was extended beyond uh, Carlisle to Harrisburg, and then all the way to the Delaware River, but there was nowhere. There was not a bridge between. Pennsylvania and New Jersey, right. so it didn't do you a whole lot of good. No, uh, I, I I remember uh, when I was a, a boy in the 1950s, we 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 took a trip to uh, to Annapolis from New York, and we had to cross the uh, Delaware River on a ferry. I remember that, and a lot of people had to. Uh, uh, drive into Philadelphia to cross right. the bridge to to, right. to get into Jersey, which would take. Uh, uh, in fact, maybe this uh, we have a uh, a question here from a caller in Lancaster. Uh, are, are you? Uh, your, is your question just about what we're discussing? Yes, it uh, is. As a matter of fact, okay. I have a comment first, okay, and to Bill. say that he is one hundred percent correct about the route that the Pennsylvania Turnpike started out as. It was actually a route surveyed by the New York Central. Railroad to compete with the Pennsylvania Railroad across the Alleghenies, but then they realized that it would be less expensive for the Central to go up to Albany and across New York State and past Cleveland on the waterline route, and they abandoned it. And that's when the Turnpike found it and said, hey, that's a great idea. We can use it. Most of the work is done. 
Well, still millions of dollars later, but uh, not a whole, you know, it's, it's fascinating, uh, Bill, Bill on the phone and Bill here, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the price tags for some of these, uh, the, the Northeast extension and uh, the, the updates, the expansion of the turnpike compared to with the, the price tag for the original. I mean, it, it, it was a whole lot more, not surprisingly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a lot cheaper back then because of inflation. Now, my question is... Does Bill know when the bridge, the current one, over the Delaware was built? Thanks, Bill. Thanks for your call. Any idea? I think it was, I'm sure it was built sometime in the 1950s, and uh, the uh, New Jersey Turnpike was built, and they they built a special spur over to connect with the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and that's that's when the bridge was built. I, I think it was in the late 1950s, but I'm not absolutely sure. The two states had to uh, cooperate. Yeah, right. Yeah, a, a joint you, venture. You write about how Pennsylvania's governor drove to the Jersey side and uh, New yeah. Jersey's governor drove to the Pennsylvania side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, and one of the main themes of your book or I got the sense of something that you enjoyed uh, stories writing the most was about John Updike, uh, the novelist uh, from Berks County who obviously who uh, just died just a few years ago. But John Updike um, was he grew up and you start in in kind of like an introduction to the book of how uh, he wasn't very popular in Berks County and around his home. Then the last chapter you talk about getting an opportunity to get an interview with them. Talk about that. Well, I, I, I started out to, to do a article about um, the geographical points in Berks County where Updike, uh, th- that he used in his novels and his, and his short stories. So I went to the uh, Shillington Public Library, which is where, where, he, was, where he was born, and I, I asked. I went up to the library and I asked if she had any information on John Updike. And a minute later, I felt a tug on my sleeve, and this uh, uh, gray-haired woman looked up at me and she said, "I know all about him. I'm his mother." So I I sat down with her for a while, and then I then I took her to lunch, and, and then she invited me to the farmhouse where where Updike spent his adolescence, and she showed me all his books, his room, and where he did it. So I I, I went back to uh, to my editor, and I told him I got a great story here, and uh, started writing. And about a, a week later, I got a call from. Uh, Mrs. Updike, and she said, um, "Chani, that's what you call him, is is uh, is coming here tomorrow to uh, change my uh, storm windows and put in the screens. Uh, he does it every year. If he came here, you could probably do an interview." And, and uh, this, keep in mind, Updike did not do interviews. So um, I got there, and he came out, and he was uh, he was a little miffed at first, but uh, he he said. Um, I'll drive. You take notes, and uh, so we drive your car. Drive my car, which happened to be a uh, rabbit, by the way. And uh, so we drove around, and but then after a while, he got into it, and we st- we 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 drove around the entire day, and uh, got back, and uh, uh, I couldn't believe my good luck. So, so I get home, and I wrote this article, and it was published, and about a, several months later, I got a call from my editor, and he said, "Have you seen the latest New Yorker?" And I said, no. He said, well, you better get it. So I, I bought it, and in The New Yorker is a, is a short story by John Updike entitled One More Interview. And it's a story about a musician who comes to his hometown as interviewed by a reporter. And, but many of, the, many of the dialogue in the, in the story is exactly as we talked. I mean, he, he just changed the, the, uh, the, uh, the character from a novelist to... A, a musician, so um, um, I was amazed, and uh, now uh, I can tell people that I was uh, <laughs> that the muse of John Updike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as you describe in in the book, um, Updike, one of the reasons that he wasn't popular in in Berks County after he left was that he used Berks County, he used. Uh, individual people changing names of of uh, Shillington and, and and people like that but people would recognize who he was writing about yeah. and they didn't like some of the ways that yeah. uh, the town was portrayed or uh, the people were portrayed right that was some of that yeah yeah well you said that uh, you even talked to some people when you mentioned Updike's name they didn't want anything to do with it yeah 
In, in what I mean, you would think that okay, you would think that that was, is something that they they would embrace, but um, you know, I guess understood. So, uh, Updike, uh, when he, when he died, uh, and w- was your interview the last one? Um, I'm not sure. I, I know he. I know he. He 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 did not do interviews. Uh, he he turned down um, anyone who wrote to the publisher asked for anything, did not did not get an interview. I mean, I, I'm sure some people got him, but not. Not very many. I, I did an interview in 1983, so it was uh, quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. And he had, at that point, he had written about 26 books. And uh, when he died, he had written like 53. So he, mm. he was, uh, he yeah. was quite prolific. Mm. So we only have about uh, 60 seconds left. And uh, Bill, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. What do you want people to take from this book? Um, I, I think it uh, it it presents Pennsylvania as a, a an interesting, uh, quirky. Uh, inspiring place. It has greatness, and it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a great state. It really is, and uh, you know, I I think that we probably have a lot of people who uh, who are listening today that uh, you jog some memories and uh, that w- want to learn a little bit more. But uh, Bill Ackenbarker, the author of the book uh, Pennsylvania Stories Well Told, his best-selling book was Kids for Cash. Uh, most of these stories taken from the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine. Bill, thank you very much for being with us Thanks, today. I enjoyed it. Coming up uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Pennsylvania budget. Uh, Katie, um, what am I talking about? Uh, our, our Capitol Bureau chief uh, uh, will be with us tomorrow to uh, come up with, uh, to, to, to talk about the budget that will is that is due on June 30th on uh, Friday, and uh, there hasn't been a whole lot, uh, hasn't been a whole lot uh, said about it, but uh, we, we hope to, uh, you know, bring some insight into uh, what's happening behind the scenes and uh, what we're looking at as far as revenue and where Republicans stand, where Democrats stand. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program uh, here on Smart Talk. Uh, coming up a little bit later this week, we're going to talk about some of the high-tech industries in Pennsylvania. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.